Chapter Seven of Memoirs of Madame Vigie Le Bon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James K. White, Chula Vista. Memoirs of Madame Vigie Le Bon by Elizabeth Louise Vigie Le Bon, translated by Lionel Strachey. Chapter Seven st petersburg i entered st petersburg on the twenty fifth of july seventeen ninety five by the road from peterhof which gave me a favourable idea of the city for this road is lined on both sides by delightful country houses with gardens of the best taste in the english style there residents have taken advantage of the soil which is very marshy to adorn the gardens where there are kiosks and pretty bridges by canals and little streams but it is a pity that a dreadful dampness spoils this pleasant scene of an evening even before sunset such a fog rises over the road that one seems to be enveloped in thick dark smoke magnificent as i had conceived the city to be i was enchanted by the aspect of its monuments its handsome mansions and its broad streets one of which called the prospect is a mile long the Neva, clear and limpid, cuts through the town, laden with vessels and barks, unceasingly moving up and down, and this greatly adds to the liveliness of the town. The quays of the Neva are of granite, like those of the large canals dug through the town by Catherine. On one bank of the river are splendid edifices. The Academy of Arts, the Academy of Sciences, and a number of others are reflected in the Neva there was no grander sight on a moonlight night i was told than the bulk of those majestic piles resembling ancient temples altogether st petersburg took me back to the times of agamemnon partly through the grandeur of the buildings and partly through the popular garb which reminded me of the dress of antiquity though i have just spoken of moonlight i was unable to enjoy it at the time of my arrival for in the month of july there is not a single hour of actual darkness in st petersburg the sun sets at about half past ten and it is merely dusk until twilight which begins half an hour after midnight so that one can always see plainly i have often supped at eleven o'clock by daylight my first care was to take a good rest for after riga the roads had been most horrible large stones one on top of the other gave my carriage which was one of the roughest in the world a violent shock at every moment and the ends being so bad as to exclude every possibility of staying at them we had jolted and jerked on to st petersburg without a stop i was far from recovered from all my fatigue since the term of my residence in st petersburg had been only twenty-four hours when a visitor was announced in the person of the french ambassador comte esterhazy he congratulated me on my arrival at st petersburg telling me that he was about to inform the empress of it and at the same time to take her orders for my presentation very little later i received a visit from the comte de choiseul gouffier while conversing with him i confessed what happiness it would give me to see the great catherine but i did not dissemble the fright and embarrassment i expected to undergo when i should be presented to that powerful princess you will find it quite easy he replied when you see the empress you will be surprised at her good nature 
she is really an excellent woman i acknowledge that i was astonished by his remark the justice of which i could scarcely believe in view of what i had heard up to that time it is true that the prince de ligne during the charming narration of his journey in the crimea had recounted several facts proving that this great princess had manners that were as gracious as they were simple but an excellent woman was hardly the thing to call her however the same evening Count Esterhazy, on returning from Tsarskoicello, where the Empress was living, came to tell me that Her Majesty would receive me the next day at one o'clock. Such a quick presentation, which I had not hoped for, put me into a very awkward position. I had nothing but very plain muslin dresses, as I usually wore no others, and it was impossible to have an ornamental gown made from one day to the next, even at St. Petersburg. Count Esterhazy had said he would call for me at ten o'clock, precisely, and take me to breakfast with his wife, who also lived at Tsarskoicello, so that when the appointed hour struck, I started with serious apprehensions about my dress, which certainly was no court dress. On arriving at Madame de Esterhazy's, I, in fact, took note of her amazement. Her obliging civility did not prevent her from asking me, "'Have you not brought another gown?' I turned crimson at her question, and explained how time had been wanting to have a more suitable gown made. Her displeased looks increased my anxiety to such a degree that I needed to summon up all my courage when the moment came to go before the Empress. The Comte gave me his arm, and we were walking across a portion of the park when, at a ground-floor window, I espied a young person who was watering a pot of pansies she was seventeen years old at most her features were well formed and regular her face a perfect oval her fine complexion was not bright but was of a paleness completely in harmony with the expression of her countenance whose sweetness was angelic her fair hair floated over her neck and forehead she was clad in a white tunic a carelessly knotted girdle surrounding a waist as slender and supple as a nymph's as i have described her so ravishingly did this young person stand out against the background of her apartment adorned with pillars and draped in pink and silver gauze that i exclaimed that is psyche it was princess elizabeth the wife of alexander she addressed me and kept me long enough to tell me a thousand flattering things she then added we have wanted you here for a long time madame lebrun so much so that I have sometimes dreamed you had already come. I parted from her with regret, and have always preserved a memory of that charming vision. A few minutes later I was alone with the autocrat of all the Russias. The ambassador had told me I must kiss her hand. In accordance with which custom she drew off one of her gloves, and this ought to have reminded me what to do, but I forgot all about it. The truth is that the sight of this famous woman made such an impression upon me that I could not possibly think of anything else but to look at her. I was at first extremely surprised to find her short. I had imagined her a great height, something like her renown. She was very stout, but still had a handsome face, which her white hair framed to perfection. Genius seemed to have its seat on her broad, high forehead. Her eyes were soft and small, her nose was quite Greek, 
her complexion lively and her features very mobile she at once said in a voice that was soft though rather thick i am delighted madame to see you here your reputation had preceded you i am fond of the arts and especially of painting i am not an adept but a fancier everything else she said during this interview which was rather long in reference to her wish that i might like russia well enough to remain a long time bore the stamp of such great amiability that my shyness vanished and by the time i took leave of her majesty i was entirely reassured only i could not forgive myself for not having kissed her hand which was very beautiful and very white and i deplored that oversight the more as count esterhazy reproached me with it as for what i was wearing she did not seem to have paid the least attention to it or else perhaps she may have been easier to please than our ambassadress i went over part of the gardens at Zarskoichello, which are a veritable little fairyland the empress had a terrace from them communicating with her apartment and on this terrace she kept a large number of birds i was told that every morning she went out to feed them and that this was one of her chief pleasures directly after my audience her majesty testified her wish to have me spend the summer in that beautiful region she commanded her stewards of whom the old prince beriatinsky was one to give me an apartment in the castle as she desired to have me near her so that she might see me paint but i afterward found out that these gentlemen took no pains to put me near the empress and that in spite of her repeated orders they always maintained that they had no lodgings at their disposal what astonished me most of all when i was informed of this matter was that these courtiers suspecting me to belong to the party of the comte d'artois were afraid lest i had come to get esterhazy replaced by another ambassador it is probable that the comte was in connivance with them about all this but anybody was surely little acquainted with me who did not know that i was too busy with my art to give any time to politics even if i had not always felt an aversion to everything smacking of intrigue moreover aside from the honor of being lodged with the empress and the pleasure of inhabiting such a fine place everything would have been stiff and irksome for me at zarkoischello i have always had the greatest need to enjoy my liberty and for the sake of following my own inclination i have always infinitely preferred living in my own house moreover the reception i met with in russia was well calculated to console me for a petty court intrigue i cannot say how eagerly and with what kind-hearted affability a stranger is sought after in this country especially if possessing some talent my letters of introduction became quite superfluous not only was I at once invited to live with the best and pleasantest families, but I found several former acquaintances in St. Petersburg, and even some old friends. First, there was Count Stroganov, a true lover of the arts, whose portrait I had painted at Paris in my early youth. It was to us both an extreme pleasure to meet once more. He owned a splendid collection of pictures in St. Petersburg, and near the town at Kaminostrov, a delightful Italian villa, where he gave a great dinner every Sunday. He called for me to take me there, and I was enraptured with the place. The villa stood by the high road, and its windows overlooked the Neva. 
the garden whose boundaries were immense was laid out in the english manner a number of boats arrived from all directions bringing visitors to count stroganov's for a number of people who were not invited to dinner came to walk in the park the count also allowed merchants to set up their stalls there so that this beautiful place was enlivened with an amusing fair especially as the costumes of the different neighboring districts were picturesque and varied about three o'clock we went up on a covered terrace lined with pillars bright daylight falling between them from every side on one hand we enjoyed the view of the park and on the other that of the neva covered with a thousand boats the weather was the finest in the world for the summers are splendid in russia a country that in july i have often found hotter than italy we dined on this same terrace and the dinner was magnificent at dessert gorgeous fruits were served and remarkably fine melons which seemed to me a great luxury as soon as we sat down at table delightful instrumental music was heard and continued throughout the dinner the overture to iphigenia was executed entrancingly i was greatly surprised when count stroganov informed me that each of the musicians played but one note it was impossible for me to conceive how all these individual sounds could form into such a perfect whole and how any expression could grow out of such a mechanical performance after dinner we took a delightful walk in the park then toward evening we went back to the terrace whence at nightfall we witnessed a very fine display of fireworks which the count had had in store for us reflected in the waters of the neva these fireworks were of beautiful effect finally by way of concluding the pleasures of the day there arrived in two very narrow little boats some indians who danced before us their dances consisted in going through light movements without stirring from their places and entertained us considerably count stroganoff's house was far from being the only one kept with such splendor at st petersburg as at moscow a number of noblemen owning enormous fortunes were in the habit of setting an open table so that a well-recommended stranger was never under the necessity of having recourse to an inn there was a dinner or a supper everywhere nothing was embarrassing but your choice i remember toward the end of my stay in st petersburg how prince narishkin the grand equerry always held open table to the extent of twenty-five or thirty covers for strangers who were recommended to him these hospitable customs exist in the interior of russia whither modern civilization has not yet penetrated when russian noblemen go upon visits to their estates which are usually situated at great distances from the capital they stop on the way in the houses of their countrymen where without being personally known by the host they their servants and their horses are taken in and treated as handsomely as possible even should they remain a month i once saw a traveller who had journeyed across this vast country with two friends all three had traversed those distant provinces as they might have done during the golden age in the days of the patriarchs they had everywhere been lodged and fed with such liberality that their purses had become almost useless they had not been able to so much as force drink money 
on the people who had waited upon them and cared for their horses their hosts who for the most part were traders or husbandmen had expressed astonishment at the warmth of their gratitude if we were in your country said they you would do the same for us i only wish this had been true the summer ends in russia with the month of august and there is no autumn i often went walking at Tsarskoichello, whose park bounded by the sea is one of the loveliest sights imaginable it is full of monuments which the empress was wont to call her caprices there are a superb marble bridge in the palladian style turkish baths trophies of romazov's and orloff's victories a temple with thirty-two pillars and then the colonnade and the great stairway of hercules the park has unrivalled avenues of trees opposite the castle is a long broad lawn and at the end of it a cherry orchard where i remember having frequently eaten excellent cherries comte cobenzel very much wished me to make the acquaintance of a woman whose cleverness and beauty i had often heard vaunted the princess dolgoruki i received an invitation from her to dine at alexandrovsky where she had a country house and the comte came for me to take me there with my daughter this very large house was furnished without ostentation and it was a great pleasure to me to watch the continual passage of the boats in which the rowers sang in chorus the songs of the russian people have a somewhat barbarous originality but are melancholy and melodious the beauty of princess dolgoruki struck me very much her features had the greek character mixed with something jewish especially in profile her long dark chestnut hair carelessly taken up touched her shoulders her figure was perfect and in her whole person she exhibited at once nobility and grace without the least affectation she received me with so much amiability and civility that i willingly acceded to her request that i might stay a week with her the charming princess kurakin whose acquaintance i had made was living with the princess dolgoruki these ladies and comte cobenzel keeping house together the company was very numerous and no one thought of anything but amusement after dinner we took delightful rides in handsome boats furnished with red velvet gold-fringed curtains a choir preceding us in a plainer boat charmed us with their singing which was always perfectly exact even at the highest notes the day of my arrival we had music in the evening the next day there was a delightful play dalarak's underground was given princess dolgoruki played the part of camille young de la ribaussier who afterward became minister in russia played the boy and comte cobenzel the gardener i remember how during the performance a messenger arrived from vienna with dispatches for the comte who was austrian ambassador at st petersburg and how at the sight of the man dressed as a gardener he did not want to give up the dispatches this giving rise to a most diverting argument between them behind the scenes at the end of the week the whole of which had seemed to last but a minute i was obliged to my regret to leave the hospitable roof of princess dolgoruki as i had made a number of engagements to paint portraits 
I, however, formed several connections at Alexandrovsky, which proved infinitely agreeable during my whole stay in Russia. Comte Cobenzel was passionately devoted to the Princess Dolgoruki, without her responding in the least to his importunities. But the coolness she showed toward his intentions by no means drove him away. His sole object was the happiness of being in her presence. Whether in the country or in town, he scarcely ever left her for a moment. So, soon as his dispatches, written with great facility, were sent off, he rushed to her side and made a complete slave of himself. He was seen to fly at the least word, the least gesture of his divinity. If a play was given, he took any part she offered him, even if the role was not at all suited to his appearance. For Comte Cobenzel, who looked about fifty, was very ugly, and squinted horribly. He was rather tall, but also extremely fat, which, however, did not prevent him from being quite active particularly when it was a case of executing the demands of his dearly beloved princess. Otherwise, he was quick and clever. His conversation was enlivened with a thousand anecdotes, which he could recount to perfection, and I always knew him as the best and most obliging of men. What made the Princess Dolgoruki indifferent to the size of Count Cobenzel and to those of many other admirers was the fact that from one of them she had received attentions more brilliant than ever woman had had lavished upon her by any lovelorn king. The famous Potemkin, he who had said the word impossible should be ruled out of the dictionary, had testified his adoration for her with a magnificence surpassing all that we read of in the Thousand and One Nights. When, in 1791, after making her journey in the Crimea, the Empress Catherine II returned to St. Petersburg, Prince Potemkin remained behind in command of the army, several of the generals having brought their wives. It was then that he had occasion to meet Princess Dolgoruki. Her name, too, was Catherine and the prince made a great banquet for her, nominally in honor of the empress. At table the princess was seated by his side. At dessert, on the table were put crystal goblets full of diamonds, which were served to the ladies by the spoonful. The queen of the festival observing this luxury, Potemkin whispered to her, Since this celebration is for you, why should you be astonished at anything? he would spare no sacrifice to satisfy a wish or a whim of that charming woman. Learning one day that she was in want of ball slippers of a kind she usually sent for to France, Potemkin dispatched an express messenger to Paris, who hastened day and night to bring back these slippers. It was well known in St. Petersburg that to afford the Princess Dolgoruki a spectacle he much desired her to see, he had assaulted the fortress of Ochakov sooner than had been agreed upon, and perhaps sooner than was prudent. No woman, it seems to me, had greater dignity of mien and manner than Princess Dolgoruki. Having seen my Sibyl, about which she was very enthusiastic, she wished me to make her portrait in this style, and I had the pleasure of doing her bidding to her entire satisfaction. The portrait done, she sent me a very handsome carriage, and put on my arm a bracelet made of a tress of her hair with a diamond inscription reading, Adorn her who adorns her century. I was deeply touched by the graciousness and delicacy of such a gift. 
at the time of my reaching st petersburg prince potemkin had already been there some years but he was still spoken of as though he had been a wizard some idea of what an extraordinary and high-flying imagination he had may be obtained from reading what the prince de ligne and the comte de segur have written about the journey he arranged for the empress catherine the second in the crimea those palaces those wooden villages built all along the route as if by a magic wand that huge forest going up in flames by way of fireworks for her majesty the whole journey in fact was a fantastic affair his niece Contess Skavronska, said to me in vienna had my uncle known you he would have loaded you with distinctions and riches certain it is that at every opportunity this famous man was generous to prodigality and luxurious to madness all his tastes were extravagant all his habits royal so much so that although he possessed a fortune exceeding that of some sovereigns the prince de ligne told me that he had known him to be without money favor and power had accustomed prince potemkin to satisfy his slightest desires here is an example which proves the point one day when the talk ran on the size of one of his adjutants he declared that a certain officer in the russian army whom he named was taller still after everyone who knew the officer in question had contradicted potemkin he forthwith sent off a messenger with an order to bring back with him this officer who was then eight hundred miles away upon hearing that he had been sent for by the prince his joy was unbounded since he believed that he had been promoted to a higher rank his disappointment may therefore be imagined when on his arrival in camp he was informed that he was to be measured with potemkin's adjutant and that he must then return without any other reward than the fatigue of the long journey the man whom a long period of favor had so to say accustomed to reign beside the sovereign was unable to survive the thought of disgrace catherine the second sent to prince repnin her orders to treat for peace to which potemkin was strongly opposed angry as possible he set out upon the instant in hope of preventing the signature but only to learn at yassi that peace was concluded this news was fatal to him already indisposed he now fell mortally ill which did not hinder him from at once beginning the return journey to st petersburg but in a few hours his ailment grew so serious that it became out of the question for him to support the movement of a carriage he was laid out in a meadow and covered with his cloak and there potemkin breathed his last sigh on the fifteenth of october seventeen ninety one in the arms of countess bronica his niece plato zuboff a young lieutenant of the guard succeeded potemkin in the favor of the empress who showered honors and wealth upon him end of chapter seven recording by james k white chula vista